In the summer of 1946, Texarkana was reeling from the terror reigned upon their community by a killer known as the Phantom. Authorities are under intense pressure to find the man responsible for the deaths of five people and attempted murders of three others. Will they be able to find the man who seems to be unable to be found? Join us for Episode 3 of the Texarkana Phantom Killer and dive into the darkness, one crime at a time. Welcome to One Crime at a Time. I'm your host, Shannon. With me, as always, my sister from the same mister, Christina. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> why am I talking like this? I don't know. I'm excited. <laughs> okay. I don't know why. <laughs> What's going on, everybody? Well, I, didn't, I didn't hear anybody answer me. Well, that's because they can't. So, this isn't like a... It's not live it's a in front of a studio studio It's audience. not live in front of a studio audience. No. One Crime at a Time is not recorded live in front of a studio audience. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God that we have time to edit is all I can yeah. say. <laughs> when the day comes that we don't, we're in trouble. Yeah, I don't know that we could ever do a live show <laughs> because it would just be a clusterfuck. <laughs> It wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> it would just be a total clusterfuck. <laughs> it, and it just wouldn't be good. I mean, I'd be willing to try it. But, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, but, might, but just hey, know that it's going to be it a would clusterfuck. Be, it would be very entertaining. It, well, for it depends on what your definition of entertaining is. Oh, I think people would find that entertaining. <laughs> they would enjoy laughing at our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inabilities, inabilities to, to do anything. I can't even come up with words, so I can't even think of the word inability. All right, so I guess we're going to get back into the Texarkana Phantom Killer today. Phantoms. I've been thought to reading about phantoms all week. You have? What'd you find out? Not you a lot. Like, Not a lot. Like? <laughs> they're phantoms. They're just, that's why you, you don't know a lot about them, because they're phantoms. They come and go unseen and unheard. Well, not always unseen and unheard, but they come and go. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. They just don't always, they just don't even really have anything important to say. (laughs) They're just in and out. They're in and out. In and out. Hey, how's it going? Bye. (laughs) Damn, that (laughs) He really knows how to (laughs) liven up a party. His introductions and his intros and exits are just world renowned, but it's like he was never here. <laughs> All right, I need to tell you guys that today's episode is presented by the Skin Store. For over 20 years, the Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skin care hair care, and beauty products. With over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands, the Skin Store has you covered for all your hair, cosmetics, supplements, and of course, skincare needs. Find your favorite brands like Elta MD, New Face, Olaplex, and more, all in one place with gifts with every purchase. Right now, the Skin Store is offering our listeners 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD. That's code P-O-D for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod dot list. Skin Store, have the confidence to tackle the day ahead. Exclusions apply. 
Now, keep in mind that you can't buy new skin. You just, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a skin care product. It's just skin care. You can't buy new skin. So don't go on there thinking you're going to get new skin. You know, just FYI. <laughs> we are also brought to you by our subscribers on Patreon. You guys Yay. are so great. We love you guys. Um, if you would like to help support the show, you can for as little as a dollar a month. We have several levels that include access to our exclusive Patreon feed, mini-sodes, merchandise, and commercial-free episodes. Now, speaking of Patreon, um, we do have a new patron, Stephanie M. Hi, so, Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. Thanks for, we're glad to have you aboard. Hi. Thanks for subscribing. You're awesome. Yes. We appreciate you greatly. And... The, now for our on our weekly review, I have to say that I usually do these in the order that we get them, but I moved this one up to the front Uh-oh. because of you'll understand why in a minute. Uh-oh. But um, I do want to also apologize for not getting it in on time. Um, but we had already recorded some episodes, so I'm getting it in now, even though the date has passed. And I apologize for that, but. Um, this comes from Stephanie um, W. Okay. Off of Facebook. It says, This is one of the best true crime podcasts I have ever listened to. I love the way you interact with each other and how Shannon always knows what Christina is going to say when somebody does something dumb. <laughs> I have a story somewhat... It's just dumb. <laughs> just dumb. Christina has a very low tolerance for dumb. I do not do stupidity. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can't help it. I have a story somewhat similar to Shannon, except that I am married to a woman, the love of my life, for 16 years. And we have have three amazing kids. Our daughter passed away eight years ago this April 6th, and I find myself using True Crime Podcast as an escape. You guys always make me laugh just when I need it. Thanks so much. Aww. And... I really wanted to read. go ahead and read that one since April 6th has just passed, and we just want to send out our love and prayers yes. and, you know, <clears throat> glad that we bring a little bit of light to your life. We do appreciate you, Stephanie, so thanks for listening and thanks for sending that. But just know that you you're, you and your family are in our thoughts and prayers, and we, we do appreciate you greatly. And we're glad that we do make you smile. Yes. So. And on a lighter note, <laughs> do you know what else comes up in April? Woo! Oh, yay. It's Christina's Ooh, birthday yay. month, guys. So you're going to have I'm surprised she hasn't already mentioned it. But I actually forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It is April. It's April. My birthday is That's April. That's how screwed up my life has been, everybody. <laughs> I forgot my birthday was coming up. That's okay. Nobody else remembers it either. I know. They don't. <laughs> so back to old, the Texarkana Phantom Killer yes. or whatever his name is. So when we left off last week, the Phantom was on a strict schedule of shooting every three weeks. See, that, I don't know if I could keep up with that schedule because, you know, <laughs> killing people is really... What what's the word? Stupid. It's um, really mean, in, it's um, really involved and <laughs> it takes a lot of planning. And every three weeks, it's complicated. Well, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't either, but not I mean, really. I mean, I think doing doing anything every three weeks is could be you know asking a lot. Well, it depends on what it is. <laughs> Some things need to be done more than every three weeks. But. <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm just saying. I, but you know, that's you another know. podcast for another time. Yeah. So, but as the three weeks went by, things began to settle down a little bit. 
And there were no more shoot. There wasn't another shooting or attempted murder at three wheat mark after the Starks attack. Uh oh. Well, see, everybody needs a vacation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the six week mark, no new no new attacks that occurred either. Because you know. Any job that you do can be demanding and stressful. Mm-hmm. Especially so when you're, you have especially to, being a serial killer. And running from the police. Yeah. So you have to take a break. Yeah. Because, I mean, can you imagine how stressful that could be? <laughs> I can't imagine. Now, citizens and the police wondered if the killer had moved his operation somewhere else or if Texacana was too hot for him to commit more attacks. With the huge police presence and the reluctancy of citizens to go out, it was not the ideal situation for a serial killer to continue his rampage. Because, see, the people in Texarkana are smart. Well, we just won't go out <laughs> right. and they can't kill us. <laughs> see, <laughs> you people are, see, the smartest people. Well, if we don't go out there, you can't kill us. Well, you know, I mean, the stories weren't out. And he but was, they were in the middle of nowhere, really. I mean. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm, I mean. And he what? They weren't in Texarkana, so yes, they were. They were just outside of. I mean, I'm sure their address was Texarkana, but I mean, but they, they were in Arkansas. He he. Okay, Texarkana is in Arkansas. I know part of it, right? <laughs> but I'm just saying they were they were home though, but they were basically out in the middle of nowhere on their farm. I just think it's because they had their window open and he could see. You. <laughs> I just think it's because. <laughs> I just think it's because he had an itch. <laughs> And nobody was coming out, and he's like, I gotta do something. Yeah. It's like a drug, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Well, I guess so. I mean, it's got to be. They, I mean, why else to keep do doing. it? Why else yeah. do it? It just would have been too risky to, you know, venture out and try to. Hunt well, down it would have been too risky to go downtown and knock right. on people's doors and kill them. I mean, yeah. I can see that. Yeah, and of course, I I think the killer knew that. And as the months passed, residents on both sides of the town tentatively eased back to what passed for normal. Couples resumed necking in lovers' lanes, albeit they were much more cautious, but they were out there nonetheless. Can you imagine imagine being the first couple to go back out and try it? Hey, if y'all come back, we'll go next weekend. But if y'all don't come back, (laughs) we ain't going. I mean, were there just a bunch of of couples that drew straws? I bet. I bet. This is how it went down. They're standing in the schoolyard. (laughs) College, whatever. It doesn't matter. They're standing in the schoolyard. Well, it'd be nice if we could all go parking again and catching yeah, up. I'd really love to get some. It's been well, six I tell weeks. You what, I tell you what, I bet you $100 you won't go out there. <laughs> Me too. If you go out there, I'll give you $100. <laughs> I guarantee you. So it was for money. It was for money. Okay. It was a bet. It was a bet. And somebody, then when they somebody came, somebody lost a bet. And then when they came back safe, everybody's like, "Well, hell, <laughs> I'm out a hundred bucks." But, but hey, you know, I can go parking. It. it was worth it to learn. I can go get some again. <laughs> That's worth a hundred dollars. No, I got another hundred. Let's go. <laughs> I think we're good. I think we're good. Now, Lawman continued working to find the Phantom. He had not killed since early May, but he was still out there. Well, no shit. (laughs) Or maybe he wasn't. Maybe he got caught doing like a little petty crime and he was in jail. Could be. The search was still on, but there was a change. Local law enforcement was now on their own. Captain Lone Wolf Gonzalez, who had famously stated that he would remain in the region until the Phantom was brought to justice, he left town 
less than three months after the murder of Virgil Starks. Well, good. Because <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't doing shit but getting in the way anyway. <laughs> good riddance. Bye. Now, Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they talk in Texas. It is. Yeah. Call Tro- them and find out. <laughs> <laughs> Trooper Max Tackett was a rookie who had just joined the Arkansas State Police in late 1945. And he felt personally responsible for not having checked out the parked car near the Stark's home the night of May 3rd. You know, that's got to feel. He's got, I mean, really yeah. it's not his fault. Right. But you know he's got to be like, I should have stopped. Yeah. Instead of worrying about money, yeah. I should have stopped. He believed that he and Boyd would have caught the killer red-handed or possibly could have prevented the crimes. And this guilt caused Tackett to pursue any hint of a clue. Even before the Starks Starks murder, Tackett had observed a pattern of criminal activity. While examining car theft files for the Texarkana area, he compared thefts with the dates the cars had been reported stolen and when the automobiles were abandoned or recovered, and something stood out to him. On every night of the assaults or murders, a car had been stolen in Texarkana, and a previously stolen car had been abandoned. He wondered if perhaps the man who had stolen the car had used it to leave town, then had returned to town and left again in a different car. Now, Tackett found it difficult to dismiss the relationship of the car thefts and the dates of the attacks. And in the latter part of June, Tackett was called to the home of Jim Mays. Okay, Jim Mays. Jim Mays. A new name. Yes, a new name, people. Mays was an old farmer who lived in Murfreesboro. He had called the state police about a man who hadn't paid his rent in several weeks. Uh-oh. So he's... Oh, little, snap! Yeah, he's pissed off. Tackett spoke with the farmer who told him the man who owned who owed him for the rent drove a light green 1941 Plymouth sedan with Arkansas license plate number 611-917. The man's name was Yule Sweeney. Yule Sweeney. U-L. Or you some, I've heard it pronounced Yule and U-L. It's spelled Y-O-U-E-L-L. It's Yule. Yule. That's how I would, that's it's how Yule. people around here would pronounce it, but I have heard some people pronounce it as U-L. It's not U-L, it's Yule. But anyway, <laughs> Tackett promised to start searching for Sweeney, and he reported the license plate number to the Hope office so they could run a check on it. And when he heard back, it turned out the car had been stolen in Texarkana the night of March 24th which was the weekend of the Griffin Moore murders. Okay. It was stolen from a man named Wayne O'Donnell outside of the hospital. So now, this has turned into a felony investigation. Oh, yeah. However, he could not locate Sweeney. He interviewed members of his family in Texarkana, but they had not seen him for a while. Then... The five-year-old son of one of his family members remembered that there was a parking lot in Texarkana where Sweeney usually left stolen cars. Now, how this five-year-old knows Wait just this? A damn minute. <laughs> now, how this five-year-old? Hey, 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 hey officer, 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 officer! I know, I know, I know something. <laughs> that they are parking lot. <laughs> Yeah, so he got uh, a, over there. He got the tip from the, from a five year old. He's like, "Hey, see, this is how we raise uh, our kids know, in the south." You know, he's over there, <laughs> lean back, smoking a cigar. I know where he's at. <laughs> hey, officer, 
I know where you can find them cars at. <laughs> That's how he said it. <laughs> this is how we raise our kids in the South. Texas, everybody. <laughs> Texas. Probably had a gun across his lap. He's polishing the barrel. I know where, I you, know where you can find those cars. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Tackett and Boyd start talking and start taking turns checking that lot periodically. And one day in late June, Boyd spotted the Plymouth. Yay, for the five-year-old. <laughs> he figured the driver would show up eventually, so he start. He just sits there. And his patient paid off. A tall, slender woman in her early 20s appeared and claimed the car. Boyd stepped out and arrested her, but Sweeney was nowhere to be seen. This woman's name was Peggy Louise Stevens Sweeney. And she had actually married Yule Sweeney a few hours earlier in Shreveport. So this was their wedding day. Boy, ladies, isn't that how you want to spend right after your wedding, You're dropping spend- off a stolen car <laughs> to the parking lot? She's actually you're, picking up the stolen car. That your five-year-old nephew knows about. <laughs> Ratted you out. Now, she was 21 years old and a resident of Texarkana. Boyd took her to the Miller County Jail and impounded the stolen car. She tells Boyd that she has no idea where her husband was now, that they had been together earlier, of course, when they were getting married, and he had sent her to pick up the car, but she said that she had not seen him since and had no idea where he might be. What kind of damn marriage is that? (laughs) What the fuck? Hey, honey, so, go get that car. Go get that car. I'm going to disappear for a little while because I don't want them to find me. So the search is on for Yule Sweeney. Now, Atlanta, Texas was a small town approximately 23 miles south of Texarkana. And on Monday, July 15th, so this would be about two weeks, a little over two weeks after um, Peggy had been arrested. And he wondered why she never came home. <laughs> The hell is that I think bitch? that he's dropped her off to pick then she was gonna drive the car. He dropped her off in a different car. He saw the cops grab her, so he took off. I'm pr- almost positive well, that's what happened. Everybody needs a man like that. <laughs> I'm about I'm about ninety nine percent sure that's what happened. Man, let me man, don't ever do that. <laughs> so there was an oil field worker named Hibbett Lee who had the day off. And so he was at Ed Hammock's car lot, you know, just shooting the shit with some people, some guys Looking there. Looking at cars. You know, just, you, you know, know, just talking. Breaking the windows. No, I'm just kidding. Now, he said that a tall, slender man dressed neatly in a white shirt and tie pulled up in a new Plymouth and asked Lee if he was buying cars. Of course, Lee tells him that he doesn't work there and that he will have to talk to someone in the office. So just as they're having this conversation... Cleon Partain. Huh? A man named... Cleon Partain. Cleon Partain, who did work at the car lot. He walked up. And the stranger tells Partain that he hasn't had the car long, but that he couldn't afford to keep it because he had just lost his job. And got married. And my wife's in jail, so i got to have the money. <laughs> well, I think he left that out. So Partain is almost immediately suspicious well, of this yeah. guy. He didn't find many people who were willing to sell a new car, and when he looked at the car carefully, he realized that it had been on the road. There was a thin veneer of dust on the exterior of the car. 
and he knew that the man wrote, wasn't from Atlanta and wondered why a guy from out of town would drive to Atlanta just to sell a car. So Partain looked at the license plate and knew the number on the plate was not one usually seen in eastern Texas. And that's because each county had a number associated with it. Like Alabama. Yeah, and whatever county a car was registered in, the license plate number would start with the number of that county. So Partain figures the car's stolen. <clears throat> so he tells the guy if he can bring him the title to the car, then he will buy it from him. But he's got to well, have the title. He's got to have the title. He can't just buy and sell a car. <laughs> so the guy says he will be back and leaves and pulls out headed toward, back. <laughs> toward Texarkana. But Partain knows that he's never going to see this yeah, dude no. again. <laughs> so Partain tells Lee Hibbett to go across the street and tell Sheriff Homer Carter that a guy had just tried to sell him a stolen car. So Hibbett goes over to Carter, and Carter radioed the Texarkana police to be on the lookout for the stolen car. Because when he left, that's where he was headed. So Carter and Lee then drive to Texarkana so that Lee can look around and see if he spots the car anywhere. Now, the two men go to Max Tackett's office and tell him about this dude. But Lee wasn't really sure how to describe him other than he wore a new dress shirt and a tie and was tall. Okay. So that's pretty much all he's able to tell him. Well. So Tackett begins to think this man they are looking for might be Yul Sweeney. But Lee isn't sure he could identify the man if he saw him again. So Tackett sitting there and he's looking at Lee Hibbett and he looks at the way he's dressed. He's dressed very distinctly. Lee was dressed with a big in a big western hat, cowboy boots, a khaki shirt and trousers with a thick belt buckle. And he thinks, well, if this guy sees Lee, he's going to immediately recognize yeah. him. So he gets the idea. They go to a number of public places and while Lee walks in, Tackett kind of hangs back, and he looks around to see if anybody reacts to Lee walking in the place. Right. Because he figures that if this guy sees Lee, he's going to take off. Well, yeah, because... Because he, he knows they were on to him. Now, when they get to the Arkansas Motor Coach Station, Lee walks in, and Tackett sees a man in a white shirt standing by the wall, and this guy suddenly turns on his heels and took off toward the back of the station. You know, okay. not conspicuous at all. No. So Tackett chases after him, and he found him crouched down on the fire escape. And the man seemed scared, and he raised his hands and says, please don't shoot me. Tackett's like, dude, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars, you know. I mean. Right. I mean, what a time in the world when. Need to shoot him for <laughs> killing all those people, but hey, I mean, we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> well, we're there now, but we are not there yet in 1946. So he's like, dude, I'm not going to shoot you for stealing cars. The man responds, Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. Now, as Tackett is searching and cuffing the guy, the guy says, I will spend the rest of my life behind bars this time. Now, Tillman Johnson had been patrolling around town looking for this stolen car, and he pulled up just as Tackett was walking out with the prisoner. So they get in Johnson's car to head to the jail. Okay. So it's Johnson, Tackett, and... This guy that they arrested, they're all sitting in the front seat with the prisoner in the middle, <laughs> riding to the jail. 
All right. Now, why he's in the front seat, I don't know. Who other, knows? other than the fact that it's 1946. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, that's got to be why. People didn't really run from the police back then. Because they were smart enough to know they were going to get called eventually. So, on the ride, the man suddenly turned to Johnson and asked, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? So, Johnson's like, man, they don't give you the electric chair for stealing cars. And the man says, hell, I know what you want me for. It's for more than stealing cars. Do you think I could be lucky enough to get out in 25 years? So Not with six murders under your belt? <laughs> no. no. Well, actually, not five. quite six, five. Now, one of the men asked what he meant, and he that's when he clammed up and he didn't answer them. So the officers take the man they arrested to the jail where they book Yule Sweeney. They had called Yule Sweeney for car theft. Now, a little about Yule Sweeney. Yule Lee Sweeney was born February 9th, 1917, in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Okay. He was the fifth of seven children with two older brothers, two older sisters, and two younger sisters. Okay. His father, Stanley Sweeney, he was a Baptist minister and an alcoholic. Well. So, you know, he went both ways. You know. His Myrtle, his mother, his mother, Myrtle. Myrtle. His mother. <laughs> his mother, Myrtle, Looney Sweeney. She was actually from Georgia. So I just Georgia. I'd throw that in there. Everything comes back to Georgia. How? I don't get it. It just does. I it don't just get does. it, though. How? <laughs> so his Seven parent... ways of separation from Georgia. <laughs> we're, we're like the Kevin Bacon of states. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so his parents divorced in 1926, and neither parent really gave Yule much attention. It was as if he was unwanted. And there's oh, a, please, get over yourself. Well, I mean, that's just what other family members said. He never said that, but okay. other family members have said that. There's a story told by his family that on one occasion, his father forced Yule to remain outside while the rest of the family ate dinner oh, inside please, the house. Oh, stop. So, <laughs> Yule Maybe please, that's because he knew he was going to turn out to be a murderer, and he didn't want a murderer <laughs> eating at his table. We don't know that Yule's a murderer. Please. Would you just let let this progress, please? So you'll—he's only been arrested for thief, for car theft. Well, he could have killed somebody in the process. No, I'm just saying. What about that guy he knocked in the head? That guy could have died. I don't know if he really knocked somebody. What in guy? The head. I didn't think we mentioned anybody he knocked in the head. I'm just assuming you're just had, making those things up. I am because I'm just assuming at some point in stealing these cars. You're crazy. <laughs> now you'll while this was going on, you'll pleaded with his sister saying that he was starving and begged, can't you just get me a biscuit or something? That's what he's worried about? Because he's hungry. biscuit. Well, he just wants a biscuit or something. He'll get a bologna sandwich after a while. He didn't get anything to eat that night because he wasn't allowed in the house that night. So the 29-year-old was no stranger to jails. His criminal record stretched as far back as when he was about eight years old. When he broke into a candy store and, sco- and stole candy and chewing gum. My God. By, really? the, by the age of 12. How much was it? Like a cent a piece? Yeah. Well, this this family was really poor. They didn't have money to spend on candy. That don't so. mean you steal it. Well, no. I'm just saying okay. that. But see, back then they put eight-year-olds in jail. Think well, about actually that. they didn't. His brother actually is actually the one that turned him in. And they didn't really... Boy, your family is really out <laughs> to get you, I think. 
<laughs> I let me guess, that brother is the father of the five-year-old nephew. I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> like father, like son, I guess. So, um, and they didn't really do anything because he, you know, they got most of the candy back and he was eight years old. So they didn't, they was like, hey, don't be stealing candy from us anymore. Scare the crap out of him no. at least. Maybe he wouldn't have stole cars later on. Well, maybe they should have because by the age of 12, get this, he was arrested for running a child racketeering gang <laughs> called the Fagans. He was the head of this group of kids. He was the oldest at 12, and the youngest one was 8. And they were running around stealing crap and selling it to this junkyard. <laughs> the Fagans. <laughs> so, he was, he was charged with racketeering so he, at he, the age of 12. He was a mob leader at the yeah. age of 12. <laughs> wow, so, most of them don't get there until they're like 30. <laughs> wow. I mean, he, you know, he had entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, real, yeah, real go-getter. Wow. Now, at the time of his arrest in 1946, at the age of 29, he'd been out of the Texas penitentiary barely more than six months. What the, the, (laughs) well, let me do this so I can go back. (laughs) What the hell? Now, from the, he got arrested when he was 12 and had had just gotten out of the penitentiary. No, he had been arrested. I'm about to say, he had served time in reform school. Two state penitentiaries and federal prisons in Oklahoma, Georgia, and Kansas for crimes ranging from theft, burglary, and counterfeiting to strong armed robbery. Do you want to know what he was counterfeiting? What? Nickels. How the fuck did you count? That's why I got caught. <laughs> but I found like, I mean, why, why are you counterfeiting nickels? I was gonna, I mean, I know things didn't cost a lot back then. <laughs> At least two dimes. But at least, I mean, do I mean, a quarter. If, if, if you're going to counterfeit. Go through the trouble. I mean, if you're going to counterfeit something, you might as well go into paper bills. Forget about all that change. So he, he was. You could do a 50 cent piece back then. You could have counterfeited a 50 cent piece and bought a week's worth of groceries. <laughs> so, yeah, he was counterfeiting nickels. And I found where his mother in 1936, she married a man named J.H. Tackett, which I found weird because he was arrested by Max Tackett. Maybe it's And I would think the two uncle, had to be related somehow. Like an uncle or a cousin or something. But I've never seen anything mentioned. Like, I've seen words like, oh, yeah, she married this man named Tackett. But I've never seen it where somebody said, well. It's your boobs. Your boobs, boobs are, are causing, causing <laughs> technical difficulties. <laughs> Interference. Interference. My boobs are actually Give interfering their with names. the microphone. Give me their names and I'll put I don't, them in. I didn't name my boobs. No. <laughs> <laughs> give me the two Tackett men's names and write it down. I'll go on Ancestry and give you an well, update Well, I started on to. That. I just didn't have time. Because I was at the, you know, at the finish line trying to finish this one up. But it's J.H. Tackett and Max Tackett. Now, I just want to get... Both from Texarkana or Arkansas? Texas. Okay. Texarkana area. So Max Tackett sets out to investigate Sweeney in depth, starting with the Plymouth sedan that was stolen from Wayne O'Donnell. This car was stolen March 24th, 1946, between 7 and 9 p.m. while parked in front of the Michael Meager Hospital in Texarkana, Arkansas. It was recovered in possession of Sweeney's wife at the parking lot in Texarkana. Mm-hmm. Now, March 24th was the evening after Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore were found dead 
that morning. They'd been found dead that morning, being mm-hmm. killed overnight. And then March 24th, the night the, after their bodies were found, was when the car was stolen. So it seemed reasonable that their killer would want to replace the car he'd driven in case it had been seen and identified with a right. different one. That's why he steals a different one every time. Now, Sweeney's sister, Maxine Whetstone, while looking through her... Whetstone? <laughs> yeah, Whetstone. Okay. While looking through some of his clothing at her home where he had been staying briefly in May, she found a shirt with the name Stark on it. She mentioned it to her husband, Wade Whetstone, and they started fighting immediately because her husband was like, I always thought that that guy, that he was guilty of the Texarkana murders. So her husband took the shirt to the police. Okay, stop right there. Mm-hmm. You've got your brother, your mm-hmm. nephew, your brother-in-law, and possibly like a cousin, step-cousin <laughs> here, out to get you. Just give yourself up, dude. Now, his sister didn't know how long it had been in Sweeney's possession, like how long he had had the shirt. And this shirt was to become a big piece of evidence almost immediately. Now... Sweeney's statement after he was arrested. Tackett questioned Sweeney, and Sweeney gave a statement beginning with February 23rd. Wait, how long did the statement go if it's beginning with February Well, 23rd? I mean, it's, he's going back. To where he murdered, to, tried to murder the first people? Well, that well, let me go over this, okay. because this, is, this just pisses another thing that pisses me off. Now, February 23rd, this would have been the Saturday night after the Hollis-Larry attacks. Right, okay? right. And here it's possible the Arkansas officers may have confused the dates, thinking they were questioning him about the events of February 22nd. February 22nd is when the actual attacks occurred, but they're questioning him about February 23rd, about where he was February 23rd. Now, from time to time, that Friday night crime was mixed up with the Saturday date, February 23rd, in other accounts. Okay. <clears throat> now, at any rate, but, you know, Sweeney, skipping any mention of February 22nd, told his version of February 23rd. He said, quote, On the night of February 23rd, 1946, Saturday night, Peggy Stevens and I and Jess Roberts went to Chaler's Nightclub in Texarkana, Arkansas. I had a quarrel with Peggy and slapped her. Peggy got Clarence Anderson who was one of the bouncers, to come back to our table and quieted it down. We left Taylor's place and went to Stockman Hotel. Jess Roberts was with us. While at Stockman's Hotel, I had trouble with Peggy, and Jess Roberts took it up and took Peggy and left me at the Stockman's Hotel. We are riding in Jess Roberts' car this night. So he's saying he doesn't have a car, and he gets left alone at the hotel. Okay. He said that this that they left the hotel about 11 p.m. Okay. Now, after Peggy and Jess Roberts left me at the Stockman Hotel, I walked down to the apartment where Peggy and I had been staying. On the same night, Jess Roberts threw rocks through the window of Mr. Garland Wells, who was Sweeney's landlord. I later paid Mr. Wells for the damage. I left my room and went to 220 Senator Street, where my sister lives. I slept in the room of that night alone, unquote. Okay. Now, Tackett believed that Sweeney's statement dealt with the night of the Hollis-Larry beatings, which was a Friday rather than a Saturday night, like I just said. Now, despite the date on the statement, he still thought this. 
but that's just his belief. It was never made clear by Sweeney if this was the Friday or the Saturday, and I could not find where police were able to determine for sure what night he was talking about. They didn't push it. They didn't clarify it. They didn't go back and say and ask about it again. If he if he come out and said February twenty third, then he knew what night he was talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think he's because he even says February the twenty third, Saturday. Yes, and he knows when and he I attacked don't, So them. my thing is, I don't think that there's. I think the statement's total trash because there's no way to determine. Because because uh, if if Sweeney is talking about Saturday, February the twenty third, it has zero to do with the investigation in any way. Yeah. If it was the Friday night of February the twenty second, he says that people can say for sure where he was up until about eleven p.m., which was around the time that the attacks occurred. Right. But we have no way of knowing for sure because police didn't clear up this discrepancy, which I find just totally crazy that they didn't go back and say, hey, we need to we need to verify which night you're talking about. Was this the night of the attacks or was this the night after the attacks? And again, Sweeney seems to, he says, February 23rd, Saturday night. He knows what night he's talking about. He's talking about Saturday night. He's not talking about that Friday night. So he didn't even he didn't give a statement about the Friday night. No, as far as because I'm they asked him about the twenty third. So in my mind, he didn't give. That's what he was asked about. He didn't give a statement about where he was Friday the twenty second because they so didn't that, ask him. Right. So that, that right. So in my opinion, this statement is. I mean, there's no. It whole there's nothing to do with it. Mm-mm. So, the next, I mean, I can't blame him there. They asked him about right. a certain date, and he gave them a statement about right. it. Now, the next portion of Sweeney's statement was his version of his movements in April. He cited his itinerary, but dwelled on no details. His account covered the critical weekend that Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were murdered, but mentioned only that he and Peggy had stayed at her parents' home that weekend. That's all he said about it. He offered no specific information about the rest of the spring, and he just kind of, he was trying to retrace their movements ending in Antoine later in April. I think is how you say that. Now, so April, I mean, they didn't get any useful information there either. He didn't tell them really specifically about where he was the night of those murders, only that he was in Texarkana. They need they need to be trained on how to interrogate people. <laughs> so the interrogation then turned back to March in the weekend of the Griffin Moore murders. Okay. He said that he abandoned the stolen Hudson sedan and they spent the night at a motel. The next day they rented a tourist cabin where he spent the night with Peggy. Earlier he'd roamed about town on foot, then joined Peggy at about eleven PM. Now, this would have placed him with Peggy when the Griffin Moore murders occurred. He said, he, quote, spent the rest of the night in the cabin with Peggy, spent all day Sunday in the cabin. About dark on the 24th of March, I left Peggy in the cabin and went to town. I stole a 1941 Plymouth sedan near a church downtown. Okay. Which he used to leave town, but we know that it was stolen from the hospital. Right. Which it could be that this church is near the hospital. It could be. I don't know that for a fact. 
He did not hesitate to admit the car theft felony, and when questions zeroed in on the murders, Sweeney was never forthcoming. He wouldn't discuss it other than to say, man, I wasn't there, or I didn't have nothing to do with it. Which, I mean, what else is he going to say? Right. Well, he now, could say, yeah, I did it. What? What's up? Yeah, now, repeatedly, he denied everything but stealing the cars. He was, he's like, I did, I stole the cars. Now, over two days... July 23rd and July 24th, Peggy Sweeney gave three formal statements that Chief Deputy Johnson typed. Okay? Okay. So we're going to go over Peggy Sweeney's first statement. This should be interesting. It was given about 10 minutes after 11 o'clock on the morning of Tuesday, July 23rd. She told how she was in the Texarkana, Texas jail in late January or early February when Yul Sweeney came up. And he was actually there looking for another woman that he knew who Mm -hmm. he thought was at the jail. And it ended up, he went into the um, alley below and they started talking. She was talking from the window in the jail cell to him in the alley below. So they start talking. And he actually goes in and pays her fine for her so that she can be released. All right. <laughs> and they had their first date on Thursday, February 14th, which was Valentine's Day. <sighs> so, the <laughs> these two kids, these two <laughs> crazy, crazy kids, kids. <laughs> I got a feeling about them. So, um, so, I mean, she was going over, there was nothing really pinpointed where Sweeney was at crucial times on the nights of February 22nd, March 23rd, April 13th, and May 3rd. Now, her account provided Sweeney no alibi for the night of February the 22nd. She said that she was with his sister, and he wasn't there the night on which Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary had been held up, attacked, and beaten. Okay. So she doesn't know where he was that night. I know where he was. No, I don't. You don't. <laughs> So, I mean, that kind of tells me, too, that the night he was talking about was well, Saturday. Saturday, not Friday. Yeah, because so he, he said he was talking about Saturday. Yeah, so he has never given a statement about well, where he I was mean, Friday. I can't blame him for that, Well, though, I don't blame him. I blame the police. Because, I mean, if you come and ask me, if you want to know about a certain date and you ask me about a different date, I'm going to tell you about the date <laughs> you asked me right. for. I'm not going to give you information. Right. I'm going to, you know, so... Now, on the 26th, Sweeney took Peggy back to her mother's on Richmond Road outside the city limits of the Texas side. The following Sunday, Sweeney rented an apartment on the Texas side. They remained there a week until she left him after a fuss. After a, they fought which a was lot. The night that, yeah, I think she's talking about the night that she left that, the 23rd, right? It's got to be. Well, now, this says that this was the 26th, so I guess they had another fight, and she left again. Maybe this isn't going to work out as well (laughs) as y'all thought it was. (laughs) So, you have a fight every three days, and you kill somebody every... You have got a busy life, dude. Now, a friend of hers named Dorothy got in touch with her and told her that Sweeney was looking for her. And that friend also told her that Sweeney had a thirty-two caliber pistol with him. I don't know how they knew that. I don't. That's just Maybe something. Maybe she saw it. It's just what she says she was told. Now, two days later, Peggy was sitting with another man in a cafe near Union Station when Sweeney appeared and walked over to him and just hit her. 
dude, she left you. Sweeney told her companion that he meant to have her, quote, even if he had to kill somebody to do it. And Sweeney just said, she said, Sweeney took me away from him. So then moving to Saturday, March 23rd, the night of the Griffin Moore murders, while they were in a second-run theater, he left for two and a half hours until 11 p.m., after which they went to his mother's house for the night. Her version left him with unexplained hours, yeah. but seemed to cover him for the later period when the murders actually occurred, because she says he got back around 11, and the murders were after 11 p.m. She told him that she wanted to go to her mother's home, which made him mad, so he slapped her in the face with a towel. Such a loving relationship. <laughs> he started telling about a girl who testified against him in taking her rings. Peggy said, quote, he told me that he had killed the girl for it, unquote. Now, okay. this claim that he had killed a girl, it wasn't really, it doesn't seem to have been followed up by officers. There was no follow-up questions, and it may be because they just viewed it as a threatening lie to intimidate her. Or it could her. be one of the girls that he actually killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody asked about it again because they just really? figured he People? was lying. Oh, my God. Now, well, actually, so far, he hasn't lied yet. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Y'all just I haven't guess. asked him the right questions. <laughs> now, the April 13th weekend of the Martin Booker murders, she said they spent that weekend at her mother's. Though she hadn't elaborated, she had documented that Sweeney was in Texarkana that Saturday. So this statement didn't pinpoint Sweeney's whereabouts, on the dates of the murders, but it did put him in Texarkana on the nights of each that each one occurred. Right. So he was in town. Now, on Friday afternoon, May 3rd, which was the day of the Starks murder, mm -hmm. Sweeney and Peggy's sister fought over some money that Sweeney owed for his and Peggy's board because they had been staying there with her. Okay. So he left in a huff. He got all pissed off and left. Well, yeah, I mean, he's he went, gonna get pissed yeah. off. He went to Antoine and told all the men that he had been that had been riding with him to work that he was going to Texarkana and would not be able to haul them to work anymore. This is coming from Peggy. She says, "Then we went to Delight and got a room at the Delight Hotel. We left my sisters to go to Delight about 6 p.m. We arrived at Delight, got the room, and went up to it." Sweeney was still mad. Sweeney left and drove the car away. In about five hours or sometime after midnight, Sweeney came back into the room. I saw that he was fully dressed. Sweeney undressed and got into bed with me. Okay. So she had failed to provide Sweeney with an alibi for the star shootings. She had said that he had gone to Texarkana that night and had been gone long enough to commit the crimes. And make it back. Right. They then stayed on the road for much of the time between May and when she had been arrested. She stated that while they were in Waynoco, I guess is how you say that, W-A-Y-N-O-K-A, Waynoco, Waynoco, let us know people Wainoka. Wainoka. let us know people out there, <laughs> that Sweeney had stole a bunch of clothes from a hotel there. Now that's going to be important later, okay? Later. They returned to Texarkana and stayed with his sister until June 28th, the day that she married Sweeney and was arrested. 
Okay. She would not sign this statement. That's going to be a memorable wedding day. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, Maybe the most memorable wedding day anyone's ever had. Because you've got two <laughs> documents with the date on it. Yeah. An arrest document <laughs> and a marriage, and a marriage certificate. certificate. Now, she refused to sign this statement. She told them that Sweeney threatened to kill her if she talked to officers. You're in jail. He can't get to you. Plus, I mean, when did he tell her this? Because she, uh, she hadn't seen him since she'd been arrested. But right. anyway, Johnson would later say he recognized she was scared to death of Sweeney. But he didn't put this in his report. He didn't say that till years later. He's like, well, I could tell that she, I, I could tell she was scared to death of him. Well, well, then well why the didn't reason you she say didn't that? Really, why reason, didn't you say that? Yeah, the reason she didn't really talk to us is, well, uh, right. she was scared to death of that man. So why not put that in your report? Why only bring that up years later? Because some things that I don't know, they, there's a lot of them. Not just him. There's a lot of them that don't put things like that. He even in the said I should have put that in my report. Well, should have, could have. Yeah, but at the time. <laughs> I'm just saying that we got to cover our, you got to bite your, bite your eye and cross your teeth. Yeah, and I'll agree, but. So, let's move on to Peggy's second statement, okay? All right, here we go. This was given the next afternoon. Johnson set her down, um, and in this statement, she said, quote, sometime during the middle of April, it was only two or three days after the Booker Martin murder, Lee Sweeney and I were at his sister's. We were in the back room alone, and we were discussing the murders in Texarkana. Okay. I asked Lee, which she calls you Lee. That's his middle name. I asked Lee who killed these people. Sweeney told me that it was someone with a brilliant mind, someone with more sense than the cops. Well, that leaves you out. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think that's probably, I mean. That's how he would, sees himself. Well, I think that's a, well, I think that's a lot of how people see the murderer because he hasn't been caught yet. So they're well. Saying, I mean, that don't mean he's brilliant. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that this. I don't necessarily see that as him saying, "Well, you know, it's got to be me because I'm brilliant." And I'm. I think that anybody. Well, maybe he's not that. saying that because of him, but you know, that's what he thinks about yeah. himself. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can just tell. <laughs> he then told me that he had better come to town and get rid of it. I asked him what he was talking about. Sweeney then told me that he had that he had the saxophone that was taken from the Booker Martin car. Ah, oh, really now? He said that a man gave it to him. After this conversation, we came to town, and Sweeney carried me to the Joy Theater and left me there. He was gone about one or two hours. He came back to the theater and got me out. Before I went to the show, Sweeney had only had about $2.50, when he got me out of the show, Sweeney had about $22 in all. So she's saying that when she he dropped her off, he had about two and a half bucks. Then when she picks mm -hmm. him up two, and, uh, two hours later, when he picks her up two hours later, he's so he's gotten more money somehow. Right. And I think that, of course, it's insinuating that he went and sold the saxophone. You think? Then she reverted, went back to April 13th, the night of the Spring Lake Park killings. In early evening, this is what she said, they arrived in Texarkana from Dallas. After eating steaks at a cafe, they went to a movie at the Joy Theater. Before the film was over, they drove to the Stockman Hotel just outside the city limits on the Dallas Highway and drank several bottles of beer. 
Okay. From there, they moved to Driver's Cafe inside the city limits, drank beer till closing time, then bought four bottles to take with them. They was getting drunk. Now, on a Saturday night, last calls for beer in Texas would have been 1 o'clock in the morning. Right. So they drove about town for a little while, then Sweeney headed for Spring Lake Park. They found several cars parked on the road in the park. Sweeney drove close to a dairy where he stopped. They drank the four bottles of beer, after which Sweeney left her in the car alone. After he was gone for about an hour, she heard what sounded like gunshots. Hmm. Hours later, he returned as dawn was breaking. He drove out of the park area at a rapid rate of speed. She observed that his clothes were wet to his knees and damp to his waist. Now, before they left the park, Sweeney stopped at a park coop and removed a large black case and put it in the trunk. I asked Sweeney what he was doing, getting something out of that car. Sweeney replied that a friend told him to come out there and get it. En route to her mother's early that morning, early the next morning, Sweeney stopped later that morning. Yeah. was what I'm trying to say. Sweeney stopped and changed clothes in the woods. Near her parents' home, they drove to a locked pasture gate. Okay. Sweeney ignored the lock and took the gate off its hinges. They then drove into the pasture and parked in the woods. Now, shortly before dark, they drove to the gate. A man on horseback who owned the property met them there, and he threatened to have them arrested. Sweeney told him that if he did, he would sure get him after he got out of jail. Yeah, I'm sure he was scared. So the man let us go, unquote. Now, this time, she had placed Sweeney on or near the scene of the Martin Booker murders, but really nothing more other than saying Well, now, really, she, she wouldn't. The, I mean, she placed him there, but really, she wouldn't know if he just left her in the car right. whether he killed him or not. Yes, right. So, I mean, she's... If she's telling the truth, right, she's telling everything she knows. Supposedly. Well, I'm just saying <laughs> if she's telling the truth. So let's go to Peggy's third statement. This, this statement was given the same day as the second statement, but later that night at about 10 o'clock. Okay. And this time, Sheriff Davis, um, Max Tackett, and Boyd were in on the questioning. Now, along with repeating her account of their arrival from Dallas and drinking beer at the two cafes the night of April 13th, she said they left the driver's cafe at closing, drove around town, and then to Spring Lake Park. Quote, He told me that he was going out to the park and rob someone that we could find in the park. He told me that he was not going to work as long as he could get money from someone else. Unquote. They drove through the park, and they took a road away from the lake. Okay. Yeah, this is what she says. Quote, We had passed several cars parked along the road in the park. We passed one car, which was a coupe. Sweeney pointed the car out to me and said, The people in that car should have some money. The coupe was parked on the gravel road outside the park along the railroad track. It was a few hundred yards from the gate to the park. We drove about 200 yards past this coupe, and Sweeney stopped our car. Sweeney told me that he wanted me to go with him to rob the people. 
We both got out of the car and walked back toward the coop that we had spotted. Sweeney had the gun, which he told me was an automatic, in his hand, and as we walked back toward the parked coop, we trapped, we, I'm sorry, we walked up to the coop and the coop, We walked up to the coop, and the couple were in the car talking. We walked up on the driver's side of the car, and Sweeney said, We walked up on the driver's side of the car. Sweeney had the gun in his right hand, and I was standing on his left side. Okay. Sweeney told the couple to get out of the car. The boy in the car asked us what we wanted, and who are you to tell me to get out of the car? Sweeney told him to get out of the car, or he would show him who he was. The boy got out of the car on our side, and the girl got out on the side away from us and walked around the front of the car to where I was standing. Sweeney told me to search the couple. I did not search them and told Sweeney I was not going to. Sweeney told the couple that if they did not hand over everything they had, that he would kill them. The boy had his hands up and begging Sweeney not to kill them. The little girl was begging me to make Sweeney stop and not kill them. Sweeney got mad because they would not hand over their stuff and I would not search them. The little girl and I were standing near the front of the car. Sweeney was standing several feet from the side of the car and to my right. The little boy was standing in front of Sweeney about four to six feet. Sweeney had the gun pointed at the boy. He shot him two times, and the boy fell to the ground. The little girl and I began to scream. I told Sweeney not to kill him. Sweeney told the boy that he ought to shoot him again. The boy did not say anything that I heard after the shots were fired, and he went to the ground. After the boy fell to the ground shot, Sweeney bent over him and went through his pockets and took his billfold and what money he had. I saw him then put the boy's billfold back into the boy's pocket after he had taken the money out of it. While this was going on, I was holding the girl and she was crying. Sweeney told me to keep the girl quiet while he got the Plymouth and returned. He backed up to the coop and ordered the girl into the stolen car. The girl got into the front seat of our car. She got into the car, and Sweeney then picked the boy up and put him into the back seat. Sweeney told me to get in the car. I told him that I was not going to get into the car. He told me that he was going to kill me. Sweeney then told me to get into the coop and be sure not to touch anything so that I wouldn't leave fingerprints. Sweeney had a glove on his left hand. It was a brown cotton glove. He held the door of the coop open for me with the gloved hand. Sweeney then got into the Plymouth car of ours and drove north on the gravel road toward the dairy back on the Spring Lake Park. It was just breaking day when Sweeney drove up beside the coop with our car headed toward town, the same way the coop was headed. Sweeney got out of our car and came to the coop and with his glove hand opened the door for me to get out. He then looked into the coop and found a large black leather case in the car. He put this case into our car in the trunk. Sweeney told me that he had tried to get some from the little girl and she would not let him have it and that he killed her. 
I asked Sweeney what he did with the bodies, and he told me put, he put them where no one would find them. Sweeney drove into the park area. His clothes were bloody. He changed clothes in a restroom near the spring house and washed his hands in the spring. We drove to a cafe on the Arkansas side and drank coffee. We then drove to my parents' house on the Texas side and parked on a side road in the woods. We slept in the car until that afternoon, then went to my parents' house. She then states that while they were at her parents, her parents walked to the bus stop there to go to town. She said that Sweeney got scared that they were leaving to go call the law. So he followed them to the bus stop. Why would they be leaving to go call the law <laughs> when they didn't know? Well, I don't know what they knew. I mean, I can see him being paranoid, but. Well, maybe he, maybe they did know what they were doing. I don't know. He followed them to the bus stop and talked to her father, who assured him that they didn't intend to call the police. I mean... Okay, now <laughs> I would definitely go to the police. <laughs> hey, you're not going to the cops, right? No, uh, no, 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 no. No way was he I going to the off, police. Honey. We, we got to go, go to the police station. <laughs> Something's going on. <laughs> I mean, but for real, right? Before we can go to town to get dinner, dear, we've got to go by the police Let's station make one first. Stop. <laughs> Then I promise we're headed to the Sizzler. Now, on Peggy Sweeney's fourth statement, that was on November the 22nd later that year. Okay. Now, keep in mind, this was almost five full months after she had originally been arrested. And now, all of a sudden, the details are much closer to the facts of the case. Okay? Right. Okay. Now, this is the last statement that she had, that she had given before she gave the statement that she did when she was doing the polygraph exam. Okay. It states, My name is Peggy Stevens Sweeney. I was born at Breckenridge, Texas, and I'm 21 years old. I first met Yul Sweeney in 1944. On April 13, 1946, Yul Sweeney and I left Dallas about noon and drove to Texarkana, Texas. Okay. We were driving a Plymouth sedan. I think it was a 1941 model. We got to Texarkana that night about 6.30, and we went to a show. And she just goes here telling pretty much the same story that she did in Statement 3 about going to the movie, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to skip down. She then says that we came out of the show, went out, and drank some beer until the cafes closed, then fooled around town until about 3.30 in the morning. Sweeney took a notion he wanted to go out to Spring Lake, Spring Lake Park and rob somebody. We drove out to the park and drove around until we saw a car, where a car was parked. This car was parked at the place labeled A on the map which I drew, which she drew a, for the officers a map of Spring Lake Park and was pointing out these locations to them. Okay. There was a couple in this car. Sweeney and I got out of the car, and Sweeney told the couple to give him what they had. Sweeney made me get out of the car, and I got in the back of the car with the little girl. Sweeney got in the front of the car with the little boy. I think the car was a coupe, but it had some sort of seat in the back. We got in the car. I moved the saxophone case off the seat so that both the little girl and I could sit down back there. Sweeney drove the car, which was the couple's car, around to the place on the map that I marked C. 
He stopped the car, and we all got out of the car. Sweeney shot the little boy. He took the billfold out of the little boy's pocket. I think he took it out of the left hip pocket. He took some money out of the billfold and put the billfold back in the little boy's right hip pocket. We then go back in the car, Sweeney, the little girl, and I. He drove down to E, which she's talking about a, the mark on the map okay. that she labeled as E, and turned around, and we got back to F. We saw that the little boy had gotten up and had gone across the road and was now on the left-hand side of the road, and Sweeney got out and shot the little boy two more times. Sweeney then drove on up to G and stopped the car. He made me stay in the car, and he and the little girl got out and walked down the road in front of the car. I don't know how long they were gone, but it seemed like about 30 minutes. They came back in our car. Sweeney stopped our car, and I got out of the couple's car and got into our car. Sweeney got out and took a saxophone from the couple's car and put it in our car. Sweeney then drove on around past where the little boy was shot and then on down to Summerhill Road and then on around to the place I have marked as H. He stopped the car there and made me get out of the car. I walked out down the road in front of the car. I heard a little girl begging Sweeney not to do something. Sweeney got out of the car with the little girl and they went across the fence on the right-hand side. I started back to the car, and when I got back to the car, I heard Sweeney shoot two times. Sweeney came back and got in the car. I got in the car. We drove to I, then turned around, then drove back to J. So apparently she's got a lot of places on this map, Mark. Damn. Sweeney stopped the car and threw away the saxophone case. He got out of the car and threw the saxophone case on the right-hand side of the road. He threw it over the fence. I think there was some bushes there. Sweeney took the saxophone because he was going to pawn it. Then he decided it was too hot. Like to... Yeah. Like it, right. If he showed up trying to sell it, he'd get caught. We drove on down to Somerville Road, turned right down past the Hope Highway on the Texas side, and turned off on a road and spent the day out in the country. Now, this statement, unlike the first three, she did sign this statement. Okay. She also had, like I said, had a last statement that she gave while doing that polygraph exam, which was pretty much like her fourth statement, this statement. And... There is even a discrepancy in the results of that polygraph because you have a lot of FBI and authorities saying that she did pass it. And then you have uh, the um, polygraph examiner, Glenn McLaughlin, saying that he believes she was being deceptive. So, I mean, you know. And I get that, and I know it's an interpretation, yeah. but it sounds like to me the way he's saying it is what the graph shows the way we're trained to read it is she passed. But I believe... That she's not telling yeah. the whole truth. You know how I feel about those anyway. Oh, I, I know. But anyway. And I know they're not accurate, but I'm just I'm just trying, yeah. you know, I'm just, you know, saying. So, what I want to do right now, I want to go over the evidence against Sweeney, okay? And I want to explain, because there's a lot of people out there who are convinced that Yul Sweeney 
is the phantom killer. But I just want to go into a little... <laughs> but I just want to go into a little bit more in-depth into these... To kind of play devil's advocate on some of this evidence against him. Okay. Now, in Presley's book, The Phantom Killer, in the 25th anniversary series, which when I caught, when I say the 25th anniversary series, James Presley, who, as I mentioned before, was Sheriff Presley's nephew. Okay. The guy that was investigating, who was the sheriff, the sheriff of Bowie County, Texas. He wrote a book, The Phantom Killer, but that book actually started out as a series of articles that, like, the first one was released in 1971 to sell for the 25th anniversary, and then he released another series of articles on the 50th anniversary, and this all turned into a book. Okay. All right. Now, in the 25th anniversary series from 1971, he writes, quote, There are some who think the man who committed the slayings was arrested but never brought to to trial for lack of sufficient hard evidence. Unquote. Lone Wolf Gonzalez's biographer also wrote, quote, The Lone Wolf had his opinion in the matter years after the series of events. He commented that the officers had a good idea who the perpetrator was but could not move in because of a lack of inconclusive conclusive evidence. So, why is all this evidence so inconclusive if you've got this girl, you know, saying, hey, I witnessed this, these murders, this is how it happened. Usually, that people take that as pretty good evidence, right? Right. So, what I'm going to do now is go over the evidence and tell you why it's not as conclusive as it seems. And why he was never arrested for these crimes, basically. So let's start with the statements that Yul Sweeney made while he was being arrested and detained, okay? And these, there there are no actual reports on these statements. These statements actually just came from notes that were from Max Tackett that were dated July the 21st, 1946. Okay. When when they arrested him the day Tackett caught him on the fire escape. All right. When they were chasing, when they were chasing him for stealing the car in Tampa. I mean, in Atlanta, excuse me. I'm all over the map here. (laughs) (laughs) Sweeney said, quote, I will spend the rest of my life behind bars this time. Do you think that I could be lucky enough to get out in 25 years? Hell, they don't want me for stealing, for car stealing. They want me for something more than that. Mister, don't play games with me. You want me for more than stealing cars. And then he also he also had asked Tillman Johnson, Mr. Johnson, what do you think they'll do to me for this? Will they give me the chair? And then in the 50th anniversary series, Presley writes that he also said, hell, I know what you want me for. You want me for more than just stealing a car. Okay. So just hearing those, it sounds like he's incriminating himself in something a lot more than just stealing a car. Well, it, uh, he did, it, it could be... Yeah. Now, it seems like what he was saying and how these statements have been interpreted and over the years is that, oh, well, he committed these murders, and he knows that they know he committed murders, so... But we don't know that for sure. We don't know for 100% sure what he's even referring to. Well, I guess the reason people think that is because he asked, are they going to give me the chair for this? Mm -hmm. They don't usually give people the chair unless it's murder or 
And that's, I guess, that's what people were yeah. thinking. Well, I mean, it's not really clear that he's even talking about murders or multiple murders. No, it could just be one person that he killed. Yeah, I mean, it could just be, I mean, who that knows? That nobody even knew about. For all we know, he could be incriminating himself in some other unknown crime that we have no idea about. Right. Now, also in Max Tackett's notes, it states, Sweeney said, quote, They don't want me for stealing car, for car stealing. They want me for something more than that. And this is basically all he has said. And honestly, I could take that to mean that he knows what they are, are really arresting him for. Even though he may not have committed the murders, he may be telling them that he knows that they, that he knows that they think that he did. You know, or he could be talking about another crime he committed that has nothing to do with the murders. It may just simply be him stating what they wanted him for, not necessarily what he did. Right. You know, but 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 now if if he's a repeat offender, that's what I'm about to get to. He could spend more time in jail because he's. Either probably on probation or he is on probation. So yeah. And my next thing was. I want. I also want to point out that Sweeney may well have known that if he got convicted of a felony, which stealing cars was at that, he would he go to prison lines, for a long time. Then, because of the repeat offender laws, he would be looking at twenty-five years to life. Right. So that very well may be what he was referring to. It could be. And in fact, he was later sentenced to life in prison for the car theft. He got life in prison when he was convicted of these Well, that's because thefts. he was on probation well, he was he, a re- yeah. and repeat offender yes. and, and all of that together. And he very well, he was more than likely very aware of that. Yeah. Because, I mean, he'd been in prison all, a lot I'm of gonna times. Tell so you he, knew, he knew the deal. All criminals know, know about time in prison yeah, and how much time what, they can get right. for each crime. They know because, I mean, he knew he knew the deal. Right. And I just think that that is very well maybe, maybe what he's talking about. I mean, Especially when he says, I'm sure they'll give, are they, they'll give me 20, you think I can get out in 25 years? They, they, I'm going to spend life in jail this time. And he did. I mean, he basically spent, I mean, he didn't serve life. He eventually got out after appealing and appealing and appealing and appealing, but. Those he was are, still sentenced to life in prison. Every single one of those are such open-ended statements. Right. You cannot draw one Unless single conclusion. Unless you set him down and made, and made and him tell you what he was talking about. And he come out and said, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's so many it's different things. It's just speculation, basically. Yeah. So it's not evidence is what I'm open-ended, trying to say. Open-ended statements like that cannot be used as evidence because they could just be talking. Right. It's not evidence. So, I mean, because they're cocky. Yeah, All criminals but this, are. And everybody talks about this case. This is the stuff they use. To, this is evidence against why, for why he's... No, no, no it's that's not. That's not evidence. No, it's not. That's why there was never a report <laughs> Right. There was no report it made. It was just notes in a, in, on, the, on the file. And if he was doing notes on a file for a stolen car, he's putting the notes in there because I'm sure he's thinking, okay, he's talking about because he's repeat offender mm-hmm. he's going to go to prison well i think max tackett and johnson thought that they could that they thought that he meant he and they the may have and they i may know have, max tackett did and they may have at that time yeah i mean honestly if i was working that i probably would have thought i think maybe they fan. wanted to they wanted that to be what he was talking about i probably would have thought he's talking like that is this the phantom yeah. killer you know but that, those statements i cannot say that he 
was saying he was the phantom killer. Yeah, absolutely in those not. Statements. There's no, not even close. Because there's so many different things that he could have been talking about. Okay, so let's talk about the stolen and abandoned cars. Okay. Max Tackett, as we had stated earlier, said, quote, it had come to my attention that on every night of these assault, that on every night of these night assaults and murders, a car was stolen on each night here in Texarkana, and the car that had been previously stolen had been abandoned near the scene. That's what he said. Or he said on the scene, actually. Now, Sweeney stole a green 1941 Plymouth on the night of March 24th, which was the day that Griffin and Moore were found murdered, but this was actually the following night after they had been found that morning. So, I mean, it's not like he was immediately grabbing this car to leave town right after the murder. Well, no, but I I could see how they could kind of may possibly be trying to tie that in because Mm -hmm. that is a big coincidence. Yeah. Okay, so, and if this theory was right, then, okay, he stole the, that, 90, that 41 Plymouth that night, the 24th. If Tackett's theory was correct, then that Plymouth should have been abandoned at the next attack, but it wasn't. Right. In fact, that car was still in Sweeney's possession three months later, because that's the car that they were staking out, waiting for him to come back to the parking lot to collect. The parking lot that the five-year-old told him to go check out. (laughs) I I know where you can find these stolen cars. So he didn't abandon that car. And really, he wasn't known for abandoning cars anyway. He usually tried to sell them or, you know, I mean, that's usually what he did with them. Honestly, I think the stolen and abandoned cars do have something to do with the murders. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, whether Sweeney was the one that did it. I have no proof of that. Yeah, so the stolen cars may have occurred on each night of the attacks, but none of those cars are actually linked to Sweeney. He did not steal or abandon a car on the night Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry were attacked, and he didn't abandon a car on the night Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were killed. And no known car was abandoned at the scene of the Starks murder. Um, Sweeney admits to stealing a red or maroon 1941 Chevrolet sedan, but this was on March 3rd, and there were no phantom attacks on March 3rd. But he took three weeks off, too. Or was that later after March? No, there was nothing that happened on March the 3rd, and he's saying that he, he was, the, the his theory is that the, on the night of the attacks, cars are being stolen. Because they're changing, they're trading cars out. And, and and that's a pattern that they can see. Yeah. Now, in my belief, maybe it does have something to do with the murders. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it is know. a big coincidence. Right, but what I'm pointing out is that you can't link any of those cars to... No, no, I agree. I'm not swinging. saying you can. I'm just saying that... And in, in fact... In the FBI files that are online, there is a note from Max Tackett, and he's just listing things that they cannot prove on this note. And he's referring to the night that Hollis and Larry were attacked, and the number two thing on that list states, quote, We cannot prove that Sweeney had a car at any time during this time. He did, he did use a cab the following night. So they know the night after those um, attacks, he took a cab. 
Then, number three states, quote, the man he was staying with at that time, he saw Sweeney leave walking at about 2 a.m. So there and again, if he'd had a car, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't be walking. Then number four says, on the night of March 23rd, which was the night Polly Ann Moore and Richard Griffin were murdered, you know, it was the the night of the 23rd into the morning of the 24th, Mm-hmm. He was seen walking on the street in Texarkana, but he did steal the ninety-four. The, I mean, the 1941 Plymouth later that night. So I just, th- that whole thing, I don't see Sweeney tied up in that theory. No, no. And it, I mean, it doesn't prove true. No, not, not for that. I mean, it could prove true for the killer. I'm not right. saying it does. That's, but that's my point, is if you believe that theory about the cars, you can't, there's no evidence whatsoever that Sweeney's tied to any of that. Right, that's that's what so, I'm saying. Now, that's not evidence against him either, is what I'm, because that's another thing people point to, is he was a car, he he, he stole cars, so well, he must know, be the one stealing the cars if you and look the phantom back, murders. If you look back at his rap sheet, I don't know if how far back it goes, I think. To when he was eight years eight old. Eight years old. <laughs> Basically, all he ever did was steal things. Yeah. He never harmed anybody. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying he didn't. Well, he did have some, uh, a well, few charges for assault. But assault's big difference from murder. Yeah. I mean. So. So, now let's get to his wife's testimony where she incriminated him in the murders. Now, according to those who investigated and questioned her, she, quote, knew details that only someone at the crime scene would know, unquote. Now, this includes where the car was found, where the bodies of Martin and Booker were discovered, how many times they were shot, the fact that Martin was shot in two different locations, the location of Booker's missing saxophone, and the date or address book that only Sheriff Presley supposedly knew about at that time. Okay. But the details she gave do not match the facts. Everyone wonders how could she have known these details unless she was at the crime scene. Well, she said herself that she was questioned quite extensively by authorities. And there's an FBI document that states she had at least 12 interrogators. Now, with that many people involved, it's not impossible in my mind that there could have been leading questions and that mm-hmm. information was leaked, maybe not meaning to, but the way you ask a question, yeah, somebody can gather information from that. Plus, there was a hell of a lot of information released and published in the newspapers. Like I said earlier, she was arrested June 28th, but did not give her first statement until almost a month later on July 23rd. The first statement that she gave, it really didn't mention anything about the killings. It was, you know, just basically a quick rundown of where they were when. Right. And she really didn't mention anything about the murder. So we're not going to be looking at that statement going back over this stuff because it's irrelevant. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the saxophone. Okay. So, Peggy says, quote, Sweeney told me that he had the saxophone that was taken from the Booker Martin car. He said that a man gave it to him, and Sweeney carried me to the joint theater and left me there. After about one to two hours, he came back to the theater and got me out, 
Before I went to the show, Sweeney had only about $2.50. When he came back, he had about $22 in all. So this makes it sound like he came to town and sold the saxophone. That's basically what she, I think she's trying to say. Now, well, that can't be true, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But first, I want to point out that she actually contradicts that story in her own statements. She later says Sweeney stopped by the car. He got out and went back to the coupe parked on the side of the road. I saw him look into the car and get some large black case and put it into the, tr into the trunk of the car we were in. So there she states that Sweeney got the saxophone from the car himself. Right. That can't be true either. And then again, I will, I promise I will get to why in a minute. But then in her next statement given later that night, she says, quote, I moved the saxophone case off the seat so that both the little girl and I could sit down. Well, we know from our witnesses that Paul Martin had placed the saxophone in the floorboard of the car. So how and why would it need to be moved from the seat for someone to sit down right. when it wasn't in the seat to begin with? Maybe they moved it back up when they stopped. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they I'm could just have. saying it's a discrepancy. Well, I mean, but they could have, but we don't know. So then in her fourth statement that she didn't give until November the 22nd, she says, quote, Sweeney stopped the car and threw away the saxophone case. He got out of the car and threw the saxophone case on the right-hand side of the road. He threw it over the fence. I think there was some bushes there, unquote. Well, we know that these statements all contradict each other, and they contradict the evidence, and we know that they were untrue. There are two reasons we know that this was not information that only someone at the crime scene would know. So how did she know about the saxophone and that a saxophone was missing from the crime scene? Well, we know how she knew a saxophone was involved because it was all over the news that a saxophone was a key clue in the case. Only, like, the day after the murders. Everybody yeah, knew that. Right. It was also big news when the guy was arrested in Corpus Christi for trying to sell a saxophone. You remember that guy that they yeah. were looking at? That was all over the news. So everybody knew that there was a saxophone that no, that everybody that nobody knew where it was. Right. Okay. We also know that her stories about Sweeney selling the saxophone were not true. We know this because the saxophone had been accidentally discovered by two fence repairs on October 24th. It was found in the woods not far from where Betty Jo's body had been found. Now, and it had been there a while. It had already started to, you know, turn green instead of the brass yeah. on it, turn yeah. green and stuff. So it had been out in the weather for a while. Right. And the case was coming apart. Now, this was only about a month before Peggy gave her statement on November 24th, which was the first time in all of her statements that she mentioned the saxophone being thrown in the woods. Right. That's not a coincidence, people. <laughs> it's also not a coincidence that the details of the discovery of the saxophone were published on the front page of the Texarkana Gazette. So everybody and their brother knew the saxophone had been found and where it had been found. She originally stated he got it from a friend. Then she said that he put it in the trunk and they drove off with it. If that was true, then he would have had to have come back to that crime scene to dump that case, and that just doesn't make any sense why he would right. do that. 
she then said that he threw it over the fence. So why did she not just say that it was thrown out to begin with in her original statements? And I think it's because she was lying. And when everyone assumed it was missing from the scene, that fit her story to explain why it wasn't at the scene. But then it was found, so it turned up at the scene, so she had to change her stories to fit the new details. Because if it was found at the scene, she had to come up with a reason why it was there. Right. And, you know, people are saying, well, there's no way she could have known that. Well, hell yeah, there is a way. Well, it was it, all over the news. Even if it wasn't in the paper, if people, somebody will talk. Yeah, she was in jail at you the know, time, but you, they've know, got, you can get a newspaper in jail. It's not that well, big of a deal. Well, not only that, but like even if you're in jail or you're walking around, people, not everybody's going to keep their mouth shut. If that's in the news, people know, and they have I'm not, access well, to I'm not, that. I'm saying even if it had not been in the news, people talk. Yeah, somebody could have overheard something, come and told somebody else. Well, it was and told the, somebody, I'm just saying it was on the front page of the newspaper. I so. know that you're saying that, but I'm saying even if it hadn't have been, there's ways to find that stuff out. Yeah. Especially in jail, because if somebody overhears something, then they're going to tell somebody else. And Yeah. Now, these are other discrepancies that are in her statements, okay? In her third statement, she says they left the driver's cafe at closing, which would have been around 1 Mm a.m. They drove through town and then to Spring Lake Park. They drove through the park and took a road away from the lake. And, quote, we had passed several cars parked along the road in the park. We passed one car, which was a coupe. Of course, everyone, including her, implies this was Paul Martin's car, but it couldn't have been Paul's car because we know... Now, it couldn't have been his car not a little after 1 a.m. Because we know for a fact that Paul and Betty Joe didn't even leave the VFW till 2 a.m. Right. And that was just leaving from there. That doesn't include the time it took getting out to the park. Right. So she also stated that Paul Martin was shot near the entrance of the park. She states that in her second a second or third statement. I can't remember which one. I didn't write that down. But it's sec- I think it's second. But he was not shot near the entrance. Right. So that detail was wrong. So it seems like the more she's getting interviewed, the closer to the facts her statements are becoming, which is very, very suspicious to me. <laughs> you know? Or maybe she had slight amnesia to begin oh. with and just... <laughs> Decided to come back all of a sudden. Yeah, right. You know, some people block out traumatic memories, so maybe, <laughs> well, she maybe they're even, coming back now. She did admit to lying. In her third statement, she said, quote, The following Monday at night, we left for Dallas, stopping at almost every town in between. About 10 or 15 miles east of Dallas, he drove onto a side road. Sweeney got out of the car and took the clothes out of the trunk of the car that ha- that he had on the night he killed the couple in Spring Lake Park. These clothes were, a- were khaki pants and a shirt. They had a lot of blood on them. Sweeney put paper under the clothes and set them on fire. We stayed there about two hours burning the clothes. They were hard to burn. Sweeney made sure that every part of the clothes burned. He said that he wanted to be sure they were all burned up so the officers would not find them. So Miller County Sheriff Davis, he took Peggy to Dallas, where they spent the day trying to locate the site where she claimed Sweeney had burned his blood-splattered clothes. 
and this search failed. The several sites she thought might be the one never, they never found any evidence of a burn. Okay. Now, Dallas detective Will Fritz interviewed her and concluded that she wasn't telling the truth. She then refuted her earlier claim and admitted that Sweeney hadn't stopped and burned any clothes near Dallas. So, we know that statement's not true. Right. She admitted that. Now, when Texas officers questioned her and took her to the crime scene at Spring Lake Park, she guided them to the gravel road and walked directly to where Paul Martin's car had been parked. Okay? She knew where the bodies had been found. She knew that Paul was shot in two different locations. So, you know, people on how on earth could she have known all this information, right? Well, she could have overheard it in jail. She could have read it in a newspaper, heard it on the news. Mm -hmm. There's hundreds of ways. Because even though they may not release everything to the media, they're going to talk. Guards are going to talk. And people are going to hear, and it's going to spread through a prison system like wildfire. Well, it didn't need to be that complicated, because here's how she knew, okay? Well, I mean, I'm just I know. (laughs) The morning after Martin and Booker were found were found dead, their bodies were found, the front page of the Texarkana Gazette included a map showing all locations along with explicit descriptions of where the bodies were located, where the car was found, and even where puddles of blood were found. These were marked off on a map on the front page of the paper. Also, the article mentioned how throughout the day, hundreds of cars jammed the highway and roads in the park as residents tried to get near the scene of the crime. It stated that the radio was discouraging any more people from coming to the area to do the same thing. So, so many people not only read about this this murder scene and the location and how the bodies were laid out, they actually viewed it themselves. So, this information was not secret right. at all. This was not something that, this was stuff everybody, that a lot of people knew. Maybe right. not everybody, but a lot of people. Anybody that read the Texarkana Gazette would know it. Right. Because it was a very, I'll put a picture of it up, but it's a very detailed map. It's got the bodies labeled, the car labeled, where, like I said, where puddles of blood were found, that's that's labeled. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was a very detailed map of the Spring Lake Park area and the crime, where the crime scene was. Okay. Now, there's also the issue of that date book. This is, this is the one thing. That most people point to when they argue that Yul Sweeney has to be the phantom killer. If you remember, that's the date book that supposedly um, Sheriff Bill um, Presley picked up when they were first at the Booker Martin crime scene. And he put it in his pocket and didn't tell anybody about it. Right. Remember? Mm-hmm. Okay. But this too can be refuted if you read all of the available information. Instead of just listening to one source. <laughs> now, James Presley, who, like I said, just reminds you, is the nephew of Sheriff Bill Presley. In his book, The Phantom Killer, Presley writes, quote, Sheriff Presley asked, did you see Sweeney take anything out of the boy's pockets besides his wallet? Did you take anything else out? Peggy replied, I saw him take some papers or stuff. What did he do with it? Presley asked. He threw it over in those bushes over there, she said. 
After she was back in the car and out of hearing, Presley pulled a small date book from his coat pocket, displaying it so all could see. I've had this ever since we made our first investigation at the scene the day the bodies were found. It's Paul Martin's date book. I've kept it in my pocket, and I found it right where she said Sweeney threw it. Okay, so this sounds like pretty damning evidence, right? Yeah. Because really, there would only be two people, three people, that would know where that date book was, right? Right. Well... Like I said earlier, James Presley's book originally started as those series of articles. And in the 25th edition, he states, quote, She said that's where the little boy and girl in the car was parked. So she's real, that's just, she's basically just pointing out when they drove in and saw the car that that's where it was parked. Right. Which it showed on the map. They found, then as a side note, he says, they found a date book there, but this information had been gathered by a Texas ranger, and we learned this information only afterward. Okay. So in this, like I said, she doesn't say anything about a date book. She's just pointing out where the car was parked. Okay. In the 50th anniversary article, it states, quote, she told police things only a person actually at the crime scene could know. One such item that connected the woman and the suspect directly to the scene was her statement about the date book of one of the victims, a book only Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley knew about at that time. So, he goes from crediting crediting a Texas Ranger Uh with having the information about the date book to then crediting his uncle. Right. So, which is it? Also, Peggy Sweeney actually doesn't mention anything about a date book. She never has. Now, this is the closest to what she said that she could be talking about. But what she said was, quote, After the boy fell to the ground shot, Sweeney bent over him and went through his pockets and took his billfold and what money he had. I saw him then put the wallet back into the boy's pocket after he had taken the money out of it. And remember, she this is in the third statement, and she stated this was near the entrance to Spring Lake Park, which is not where the date book was found. Okay? So, in her fourth statement, she stated, quote, He stopped the car, and we all got out of the car. Sweeney shot the little boy. He took the billfold out of the little boy's pocket. I think he took it out of his left hip pocket. He took some money out of the billfold and put the billfold back in the little boy's right hip pocket. Now, this is the closest she comes in any of her statements to making a reference to anything being taken from Paul Martin's pockets. So she doesn't really state the only place that we have mentioned that she even says something about even the papers is just a story from james presley's book that's not in a report anywhere okay so and there's also statements made in later years by sheriff bill presley where he states that he was not 100 percent sure that sweeney was the phantom killer Now, in my opinion, if he had found that date book the way that it's put forth that he found it and he kept it secret and he and only 
the killer or somebody at the scene would know about it and she's the only other person that told me about it would that would you have any doubts well i mean maybe about sweeney another theory could be maybe she was at the crime scene well i'm just saying i'm not saying maybe not with sweeney but I'm just, well, I mean, I don't think she would have been there by herself or with somebody else because she was with Sweeney this whole time. But my point is, if he found that book the way it's been presented and never said a word to anybody, and then this girl really comes up and says, hey, there was a date book, which she never does in anything that I've seen right. other than that, other than that passage from a book. You know, right? Then I, I just everybody points to that and says, "Well, it has to be them because she knew about the date book." Well, no, she didn't. In my opinion, no. I, there's no, no evidence, firm evidence I've seen that supports the fact that she knew about any date book. Right. Okay. So that's just my two cents on that. <laughs> now, I lost my place. Now, there's an FBI document that is dated February of 1947. Okay. That was the month that Yule and Peggy were both convicted of car theft. Okay? Right. Now, this document states, quote, Peggy Sweeney has again retracted her statement involving Yule Sweeney in this case. So, she keeps saying he did it, he didn't do it, he did it, he didn't do it. She just keeps retracting her statements. Now, there's another FBI document that states, quote, this is a document as a matter of record and information for the girl. It might be stated that Peggy Lewis Sweeney has on previous occasions indicated that Yul Sweeney was the subject who committed the unsolved murders in Texarkana, but in each instance retracted her story. Okay. So every time, every time she has said, no, I was, that's not true. He didn't do it. Now, in the files, I also found a copy of a letter that Peggy wrote to her parents in February of 1947, that same month. Okay. This letter states, Dear Mom and Dad and Kids, We'll write you again today. How are all of you? Fine, I hope. I guess the sheriff on the Texas side and that FBI man had been out to the house, for they was up to see me to see me yesterday. They still think Sweeney killed those people. I don't know what to do. They don't believe me, so what else can I do but tell them that he did it? They will believe a lie. If I send Sweeney to the chair, that would be on my mind the rest of my life for taking his life when he was not the one that killed that little boy and girl on April 13th. I could send him to the chair, then I would be a killer. That so-and-so that y'all rent that house from said that we was in his field on April the 14th. She's talking about the guy on the horse when they were right. up at the gate. That That is a lie. I wish that Dad would have said something to him about it. I don't think that they want to send me to the pen, but it is Sweeney they are after. Okay. So there she's saying he didn't do it. Right. I told all this. I honestly think that she was led into these confessions, and that's how she knew all of this so-called information that there's no way anybody could have known right, when everybody yeah. knew it. Yeah. Also in the FBI files, there's a paper where Max Tackett had written down this note. Tackett says, 
We cannot prove that he was in Texarkana on the night of April the 13th, and we cannot prove that he was in Texarkana on the day of April the 14th by anyone other than Mrs. and Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Stevens, which those are Peggy's parents. Okay. He goes on to say that now they have decided that this might not be the day they remembered seeing him. So now they're even saying, well, maybe it wasn't April the 13th or 14th that we saw him. So they're not even sure if he was in town that day. So they don't have any way to prove he was even in Texarkana other than Peggy saying he was. And we know that we just can't, that Peggy's not reliable. Okay. In my opinion. Right. What do you think? Well, I mean, she's contradicted herself, but chances are it's because she either got fed this information or read it. Either way. But another thing is that she could have been at the crime scene. I'm not saying Sweeney killed him, but they could have driven through there maybe afterwards or... Or maybe they did go through the car looking for something to steal because didn't he make a statement that as long as I can steal something, I'll never work? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe they did. Well, I mean, did. I, I don't doubt that he was, he's a thief. He's a thief. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Maybe they did drive through the park looking in cars, seeing mm-hmm. what they could find to steal. Yeah, I don't know. That I don't know. I just know that this, that there is nothing concrete or even really circumstantial in my opinion, that points to him being the phantom. No, and I'm not saying he was in the park killing them. I'm just saying maybe But I'm just did. saying all yeah. this evidence that everybody points to, to me, it's just not there. If you go by that evidence, you cannot, I mean, you can't bring charges against Which him. they didn't, and they never have. But to me, but, I mean, because when you hear people talk about this case, they're like, oh, well, they solved that case. They just couldn't prove it. There's nothing here to, that... To tells no. me that he did it. There's nothing there that tells me this case is solved. Right. Now, saying that, he could have done it. Well, he they could have. They just don't have the evidence to prove it. Well, they, I, that's true. He could have done it. But what they have, to me, it doesn't, I mean, there's not even anything suspicious. Other no. than, because you've just got this girl that was arrested and knows this information that everybody already knew anyway. No, if you go on that evidence, he did. You you would have a jury if you presented that evidence in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. A jury would find him not guilty. Yeah. Period. Now there is the the issue too. There was um, supposedly a work shirt found that had the name. It was it either reads Stark or Star. It's either S T A R K or S T A R R. Okay. Okay. Either way, it's a, it's not to me that because Virgil Stark's name was Starks. It wasn't Stark. Right. So even if it's Stark, it's why would he only put Stark on his work shirt? Now, supposedly, Yul Sweeney, I mentioned earlier, he stole all those clothes out of the hotel room. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, well, when police went to track that lead down, they didn't find any evidence that Yul Sweeney would ever stayed in that room. Okay. So, there's nothing to link him to it there. Then there's another story that his sister found it among his belongings that he left behind when he they when him and Peggy had been staying at her house and that her husband took it to the cops. 
because it said Stark on it. And I'll put the picture up. You can't tell what it says. It's either S T A R. It's it's Star something. It's either Star with two R's or Star Stark. But there's no S on it. Right. So I don't understand. So everybody's like, oh well, you know, that's hard evidence against him right there. He had Virgil Stark's shirt. Now, granted, they took the shirt and let um, Katie Starks look at it. Now, she initially said, yeah, that looks like his shirt. Then the next day, she came, she comes back, and she's like, wait a minute. She's like, I'm not sure that's his shirt. She's like, it only says Stark, and if the S was missing off of there, I would have fixed that. She's like, I wouldn't have let it just go with Stark. Right. She's like, if if it was his and it was messed up, I would have fixed it. So she's saying that, no, I don't think that's his shirt. Now, there were some, some there was evidence that it did it contained, um, like, pieces of um, steel, slag stuff, like when you weld, like yes. the, the, yeah. the, the slag that comes off. But if it was a work shirt... It could have been somebody else welding. I mean, you know, it's not anything conclusive. If if they came up with a shirt that said Starks on it, you know, I might, it might make me bat an eye. But if you've just got a shirt that says Stark or Star and you can't really tell what it says, the man's name wasn't Stark. His wife said, if that shirt said Starks, I would have fixed it. Now, it very well could be Virgil's shirt. And it got messed up while it was in Sweeney's possession. Yeah. So his wife couldn't have fixed it. Right. But we don't know that. No. And there's no way to know that. No, there's not. So, again, they're in. I just, I don't think it's relevant. Because you can't prove anything. Well, even if he had the shirt and it was his shirt, that doesn't mean he killed him. True. I mean, it could have been donated. Yeah. I mean, you can get, there's ways, I mean... There's, even back then, there was, especially during a wartime, there was many ways to get different, like, clothing because people would donate stuff because there were families that didn't have any. My whole thing with this whole case against Sweeney is there's a way to explain everything. Mm -hmm. Every piece of so-called evidence, there's a way to explain it. So you don't have, like, the smoking gun, you know, in this case against him. So... I just, to me, I'm not convinced that Sweeney, that Yule Sweeney is the phantom killer. I'm not going to say he's not the phantom killer. But I said I will, I'm not convinced he is. I will based say. Based on this stuff. I will say that if that's all the evidence there is, I couldn't convict him. No. Which is why he was never charged for it. Right. All right, so that's where we're going to end this week. We're going to pick up again next week. We're going to go over a couple of more suspects. Um, tie this case in and let you know what it's, which I mean, you've already picked out the common, com- the similarities with another famous serial killer so that we'll talk about. And the timeline, people say the timeline doesn't fit. Well, it could fit. So we'll go over that next week also. Okay, so references for this episode, just pretty much the same ones as before, but I'm going to go over them again. Phantom Killer by James Presley. Um, videos from Jeremy Kennington and John Tennyson through the Texarkana Museum, si- Museum System. <laughs> um, an article by Prudence McIntosh at TexasMonthly.com. 
an article by Christy Stockton at thoughtcatalog.com, and an article by Field Walsh at txktoday.com. Okay. And now, dun, 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 it's our Crafty Criminal of the Week. Yay! Woo! Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Yay! Woo! And, then, <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. <laughs> yes. I remember people, these people are not crafty at all. And really are not criminals. Can barely be called criminals. <laughs> So, in honor of um, the Sweeneys, the happy couple Sweeney. who, you know, had the eventful wedding day, this <laughs> this story is called The Couple That Drinks Together. All right. Recently, a woman in Fresno, California, was stopped at a DUI checkpoint for being drunk. Well, isn't that what you usually find at a DUI yeah, checkpoint? Yeah, she, they found her to be drunk. All right. Now, ever helpful, she offered up this info, quote, my husband's right behind me, and he's even drunker than I am. <laughs> so I guess they where spent they, their where night. Where are they from? <laughs> Fresno. Oh, so wow. I bet, so I'm guessing both of them spend the night in the jail. In jail. Yes, so but see, they the were separated couple, because right. they weren't going to put them in a cell together. Just like Sweeney and Peggy, Yule and Peggy, Young Love. <laughs> So that's our Crafty Criminal of the Week. Yay! You know, criminals are dumb. (laughs) Be drunk people just are stupid. (laughs) I don't tolerate stupid real well. I know. Don't drink and drive people. Don't. It's not funny. Fucking idiots. It's not. That's that's funny because she sold her husband out without even being asked. But but it's not funny that she was drinking and driving. Don't be drinking and driving. You're a piece of shit if you do. I mean, you know, what you do to yourself... That's your right. business, but when you start killing innocent people, yeah, I mean... You don't know what could happen, so just don't fucking do it. Yeah. Now, don't forget that you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash onecrimepod. Um, again, our mini-slow for April is um, the murder of Kevin Potts, so you can go check that out Potts. if you want to. Potts. Potts. You His can... wife's name is Charlotte Penn. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. No, I'm kidding. So you can also check out. <laughs> you can also go check out our merch at T Public. Uh, put a link to that. Um, there's a link to everything on our. Um, we just link description everything. for uh, this. We're episode. linking everything yeah. together in the description for this episode. There will be one link that will send you to the link for everything that we have. We will. Um, like I said, we'll have a link to those in the description. Um, remember, you can also email us at onecrimeatatime at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at One Crime Pod on all of those. And the biggest thing you can do to help us out is you can go give us a rating and a written review um, on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. And we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Um, so I guess that's everything for this week do you have anything you would like to say you would like to remind people to go yep go listen to out in the sticks i know i ain't been there in a while but no this um, week we're going we'll be there this week we'll be there this week but and for sure the next three weeks yes (laughs) so check it out three new ones are coming up back to back to back yes we're just throwing them out there baby Back to back it's to just back. Been, it's been hectic. I, I, I hope everyone is still listening to it. I'm, I'm well, if they're not, they can go back to listening to it. How about that? Can. Yeah. So, 
All right. So I guess that's everything. That's everything. All right. So until next time, remember to only dive into one crime at a time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>